0: Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me back again is Shane Jenkins. Welcome back to the show, Shane. Woo-hoo! I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, it's great. And it's nice to have you on for a Christmas episode. It feels quite festive. I will warn our listeners, this will be released, I think, about a week or two before Christmas. And I am taking Christmas off. There will not be any January episodes because of that. I am going to enjoy I haven't taken an actual holiday since March. So... <laughs> what are you <laughs> I'm... talking about?
1: Your holiday began in March with quarantine.
0: <laughs> yeah, because in lockdown, work doesn't count.
1: That's right. <laughs> And no stress happens.
0: But it's really nice. We're definitely in the full Advent-y, Christmas-y season. I've been writing Christmas cards all morning. And we've got a relatively kind of festive episode coming up. Uh, last time you were on, Shane, we were delving through the rich textual meanings and themes of T.S. Eliot's poetry. Mm-hmm. I think this time we have a slightly more easygoing episode.
1: Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Less cerebral, perhaps.
0: (laughs) But a little bit more tricky for the podcast medium because we are going to be talking about uh, painters and artists, and and in particular, one painter, Tiso, James, Joseph, John.
2: JJJ.
1: It's uh, Jacques or James, and then his middle name is Joseph, and last name Tiso. But yeah.
0: And we're going to be talking about his series of paintings on the life of Christ. I think it's a wonderful thing to talk about during this time of the year. Yesterday, Shane and I were kind of discussing this episode and what we wanted to talk about. And I was just saying that how, for me, I think Christmas is such an incarnational time. Like it's the time that we're really thinking about Christ entering into our world. And because of that, I feel like the sort of storybook element to it is much more pronounced. We bring out our little statues for our nativities. I hang up my old Christmas cards everywhere with Madonnas and child images on it. I think it's like a very visual time. Even though I was kind of reflecting that for a season that is so focused on Christmas movies, like there's such a big part of the Christmas tradition in the modern world. There's kind of, as far as I know, I know there was one a couple of years ago, but I don't feel like any nativity story film has really caught on ever. Am I right?
1: Not on its own. They always are sort of a a prelude to like a passion story, you know, Mm -hmm. or a life of Christ story.
0: Yeah. It, in some ways, it feels kind of like it's missing. I read some articles where people were sort of complaining about the supremacy of a Christmas carol becoming like the Christmas story instead of the nativity. But I would say that there are more Christmas carol films. So I feel like For people who maybe don't go to church very often or don't read their Bible with their family, things like that. But to me, it makes sense why in some ways those kind of Christmas stories can become part of the pop culture more. And I just think it's really interesting that we're kind of missing that big narrative visual story. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a really great opportunity to look at some of the painters that have really delved into capturing the whole of Jesus's life in this way that like, was just before film came into being, but feels like it was a big precursor To film and filmic storytelling. And one of the big name in this is Tiso, who produced an enormous series of paintings about the life of Christ. And Shane, I think you're going to give us a little bit of a rundown of his his story. But I guess maybe we should give a little bit of an intro as to how we both sort of separately came to being big fans of Tiso. I was reminded of that C.S. Lewis quote where he was like friendship is just saying oh my gosh you like this thing too I didn't know anyone felt that way and I feel like you and I had that moment with Tiso where you were like I've been researching this guy and I was like I love him he's so interesting
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I absolutely um I was gonna say the story of how I found him is a bit uninteresting but it does show just sort of where his legacy is at the moment which is that you know you and I are both fans of of Catholic art. We're people who would seek out weird and rare but interesting examples of Catholic art at its finest and yet I had no clue who this man was or anything about him until I was doing a Google images (laughs) search for images of the stations of the cross for a project at the, at Newman Church and I kept realizing that every time I searched a station there was a painting of the exact same style for every every scene. I was like I was like why who is doing these these are fantastic and then I just I just I just kept clicking essentially and discovered, oh, there's this guy, James Tissot, he's got a lot of paintings. At that point, I didn't realize how how expansive the work was. I thought he just had a passion series. But as I delved further and further, I discovered that, oh, wow, like this man has an entire gospel story, every single scene depicted, but he really has been out of the public eye until the past two years. But when I was doing my research, I discovered that there was very intermittent Tissot scholarship by like a person or two from his death until about maybe 10 years ago. And then in the past two years, there's been a real explosion of interest by people who have pivoted from their own perspectives, whether it be spiritualism or the Bella poke artists, um, or or just people who wanted to know about religious artistry, all kind of converging on Tissot all at once. So I guess in a weird way, the zeitgeist of that rediscovery of Tissot reached both of us as well, that, that we discovered him independently at mm-hmm. the exact same time as all these other people were coming back to him
0: absolutely I came across him it was one of those cases where again like you said I knew a bunch of his paintings and despite the fact that they have a very distinctive style I think just because there's so many of them from so many parts of Christ's life that I didn't necessarily put it together that he was the same artist and in fact I knew some of his his secular paintings as well and that kind of moment where you go, oh my gosh, every single one of these is by the same person. It it kind of clicked with me. There was an edition of the Magnificat. Presumably, I think this time last year, I think it would have been for a Christmas one because it was the, the journey of the Magi it had. So at the back of every Magnificat, they have like a two page, three page spread about another artwork. Mm -hmm. That particular time they talked about that art and that artist. And I remember just thinking because his biography is also so interesting. It was then that I started like putting all of the dots together and saying like, oh, this is someone who has done something really interesting. And like you said, I felt was very under spoken about, underrepresented <laughs> in the kinds of talks about Catholic art that I'd ever come across.
1: Yeah, I think that's sort of the funny thing is um, a lot of people, like you say, know a painting or two or, or they've shared it or they've seen it, or they might recognize it. What I found when trying to learn more, because I saw that there were all these series and I wanted to say, I wanted to just experience them all back to back, right? I wanted to just show me the whole thing and I'll go through it. I wanted to see all of them. There is no easy place to access all the original paintings, at least because they were eventually printed in, in a, a Bible format. There's, there's the original paintings and then the printed versions. And mm-hmm. the originals, which are much higher quality, um, are difficult to find at all and in order. And so mm-hmm. um, that's sort of what let me, led me to want to investigate further and try to collate them my, myself and put them in order for, for people.
0: Yeah, it began like a a genuinely huge project. I remember you telling me about it and I kind of recognized that it was a big project, but it was only when you presented me with this link to your your blog in Praise of Follies and you showed me this huge article that you'd written and then this enormous slideshow that you'd put together of, of all of his New Testament paintings and I was really taken aback for all of our listeners, of course, I will be putting the link to that in the show notes. It'll be in the email that I send out. So if you want to sign up to the email, just head on over to the website. But yeah, in in praise of follies is Shane's blog, and he's done an amazing job of just collating all of this, both the information about Tissot's life and then these paintings that he's done.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's it was it was it wasn't a a work. It was a a prayer <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to tease what's coming next, but um. Yeah, no, I I honestly did it just because it was a passion project. You know, I'm not a scholar per se, beyond just being someone who's who's decent at research and, and likes putting their nose to the grindstone, but I hope people enjoy it. My goal was just to continue what Tiso's dream was, which is to help people encounter Christ in a medium or a way that they had never seen before. And, and, and it's pretty unique. So we'll, we'll we'll get into why it's unique in a moment. So
0: Yeah, but I guess maybe this is a good opportunity to maybe recap some of the information that you have in that blog about his life and what led him to do this series of paintings.
1: Absolutely. Because yeah, his story does not begin with religiosity at all. But I'll give you guys a quick rundown before we jump into the project itself. So Jacques Joseph Tissot. Um, was born in Nantes, France in uh, the 15th of October, 1836 to a, a father who was a textile merchant and a mother who was a hat designer. So, he was already in and amongst sort of a a world that, that dealt with fashion, that dealt with fabric, that dealt with clothing, but he was also, you know, amongst a wealthy family. So, he was able to become an artist. So, at a young age though, he was already taken by English culture, which is why he changed his name to James Tissot. Um, at least that's as, as far as we can tell, it happened around the time he was 18, around the time he was trying to move to Paris to become an artist. And when he did so, he enrolled in the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, which is sort of a, a grand, like a, an old master's school, the, the School of Fine Arts in Paris, where he studied under quite a few famous painters, such as Louis Lamothe and Hippolyte Flandrin. But what's more interesting to people who might recognize some of these other names is that while he was there studying, he was in and among, if not great friends, with um, artists such as Edgar Degas, Edouard Manet, and James Whistler, who was an American painter expat over there. And he he really achieved success quite quickly. Um, the way that you achieved success at that time was exhibiting paintings in the Paris Salon, a place where that was centralized for uh, artists to present their work, become paid for their paintings, or to more or less sort of just be recognized and, and put into. Uh, journals critiquing how the artwork was. But early on, he already got uh, a few paintings accepted to the salon and well praised. His style at the time was more of a a sort of Belgian or historical style, kind of copying some of the greats from the Belgian tradition, but that would change over time. And what happened was he became pretty successful, got got some money pretty quickly, was living a comfortable life. And then all of a sudden, the Franco-Prussian War comes around and the French Commune, which was sort of a, a progressive, anti-religious secular movement took over Paris and he fought with them to try and defend the city in a sense possibly to defend his livelihood and his possessions but it really uprooted his life at the time and so what ended up happening was towards the tail end of that conflict whether because of unintended political ties or just because he wanted to be in a more stable environment he left to London to start his career over and he quite literally left with almost no money in his pockets like quite literally nothing he just brought some paintings that he had done with him to try and kickstart his career again. While he was there, he actually was fortunate enough to have some painting connections from his time in Paris that helped him get started again and get on his feet pretty quickly. In London, he achieved more success than he ever did in Paris. He started painting for the high societies, doing portraitures of of various uh, aristocrats or doing paintings of balls and ship ship gatherings and dockyards and all sorts of things that would be happening in London. Um, But he was living an exorbitant life. He was going to these parties, showing off his wealth. He he owned a beautiful mansion, which is actually across the street from the Abbey Road Studios <laughs> from Ooh. today. And what he would do when guests came by, and we, we know this from letters that these guests wrote after the fact, was that he would sort of try to show off his wealth when they when they got there by having... Champagne available immediately inside the door when they got there, or servants polishing the leaves of plants out front when they came by, just to just to give the sense that he was he was he was doing okay. Um, but a lot of it was a show, and wasn't wasn't happening all the time. But another thing came into his life to sort of turn it all around, in that he had never married at all to this point. Um, and not been known to have any sort of significant partner until this woman named Kathleen Newton, who was an Irish Catholic, um, but daughter of a father who was serving in the colonies, particularly in India. She arrived in London after a life where she was married quite at a, quite a young age to a man and had children, but then divorced him. And so... Here's this woman with a child, recently divorced, encountering Tissot and they hit it off right away. She had a profound impact on his life and that all of a sudden, you can see his painting subjects change to domestic life. He focuses on the interior, he's doing, he's doing paintings of her children um, and they, they had a, apparently what he refers to as some of his happiest years together for a very brief, brief time until um, she caught tuberculosis and slowly wasted away. And so, we have paintings as well of her progression as she gets more and more frail and thin and more sedate. So, when she died in 1882, though Tissot was rumored to have a son with her, it may have been a tenuous claim because he never attempted, it it seemed to be a part of that life or the family never wanted him to be a part of of that life because he left almost immediately after her death for Paris. It's a lot of people would say that he was fleeing a place that was once quite happy, but was now sort of stained or colored by this experience that he had now lost. Um, and for a good while, he actually suffered from, from this loss, trying to reconnect with her. And a rather unknown but insignificant part of T.S. life was that he sought out spiritual mediums, which were becoming incredibly popular at the time. E- even um, our T.S. Eliot uh, podcast talked a little bit about this, people seeking out tellers and those who could connect with the dead. But he met with a man named William Eglinton actually who was a famous medium from Winnipeg and experienced a vision of Kathleen supposedly which inspired him to create a rather strange painting that was lost until only these this past two years when scholarship has returned to, to Tissot called The Apparition and it's a, it's a vision of Eglinton right next to Kathleen Newton both in very strange white flowy garments. But anyways. He had fled back to, to Paris to try and take up work at a new studio. This time he had money, he had notoriety, he had fame. <laughs> but what he found was that when he was in London, everyone criticized his works for being too French. They, they had all these eccentricities and too much of a focus on, um, I don't know, frivolities or the emotions or, or, or detail. And then when he came back to Paris, started exhibiting works of parisian women in high society he was criticized for being too english and that his works were were too sort of conservative or um (laughs) predictably you
0: just can't win can you you
1: no matter where he went people thought he was the opposite (laughs) and with a name like james or jacques people can't really tell where where he fell but
0: i think it's worth noting though and certainly this is more to do with his time in, in in england but he really was at the very top of his game in terms of his notoriety and also for his like pushing the envelope constantly being like accused of being quite risque you could see ankles and petticoats (laughs) all of these things yeah that he was he was quite kind of criticized for and he was very much like as far as I can tell, the the person to go for sort of materialistic grandeur. So at that time you've got the Impressionists who he was definitely friends with, but kind of set himself aside from, because for his paintings there was a real focus on the details of materialistic splendor and mm-hmm. uh, It was all like slightly sheer, but very elaborate dresses or huge hats and these huge garments and this very kind of lavish lifestyle, which... I think is really interesting because I think you're about to go into his, the sort of second phase of his life, which just couldn't be more different. So I just wanted to make sure that people understand that this is th- this change in his life comes, and it's not just like a slight redirection. It, it is a complete one mm-hmm.
2: Yeah,
1: no, I'm glad you said so. Even, even just to give a, a vague comparison, the kind of wealth he was dealing with was millions uh, of today's money. Like, like he would have been truly a millionaire for his success, which compared to famous names such as Degas and Manet especially was much greater than the success they achieved while they were alive. I'll get into it in a, in a second here but Tissot was good enough friends with Manet that when he was struggling and down on his luck, he actually traveled to Venice with him briefly and bought one of his now most or most famous paintings, such as Blue Venice, and then sold it for like I think like three thousand francs or something later. And so he was just trying to help his buddies sort of achieve success. He bought some of Degas paintings as well. But when we see later that as he does this religious project, a lot of these friends or peers of his would turn on him and say that his religious works were more of a show because he started selling their paintings and they thought, oh, he's just in it for the money. Like he doesn't really care. But a lot of scholars might argue it's just jealousy for his success in a sense, because here's a guy who's able to do everything and make money all the time. (laughs) But anyways, so yes, when he gets back to to Paris, he starts working on an ambitious and quite large series in terms of like physically large series of paintings of Parisian woman from around the city in various places of high society. He gets about a little over halfway through finishing his series um, and he's working on one called, well, it's reportedly has a few different names, but a common name for it is the woman who sings in church or sacred music. And what happens is he's doing a study in the church of saint sulpice in, in Paris and being a, a, a man who has been raised Catholic by his devoted mother, even if not very practicing himself he notices that mass is beginning. So, he puts down his supplies and and stands at attention for mass in the back of the church. And then at the time when he reaches the Eucharistic prayer, he reports that when the priest raised the host and said all the prayers that he was meant to, he so felt seized by a vision. And in that vision, he saw two homeless peasants residing within the crumbled ruins of a, a once great building, possibly a building of the French state, possibly a church, It's unclear, but what we do know from it is that in the image, these two peasants are being comforted by a a figure of the crucified or post-crucified Christ, a Christ who is bloodied and beaten, has the crown of thorns on him. And though the peasants don't realize it, he's right there among them, leaning against the shoulder of one of them, trying to comfort them in his own suffering. And this, this image haunted Tissot so much that he had to paint it, which is why we have a picture of it and why we're able to talk about it in detail. But he he couldn't finish his Women of Paris series. He just felt so sort of affected by this, so moved after all the the turmoil that had gone on in his life in the past, that he abandoned all those projects and he decided instead upon finishing this painting that he would spend the rest of his life only devoted to creating religious works, works that promoted the message of God's mercy and grace and love in some way. And so, there we get into our big project, which is (laughs) the first of his two projects he did in this time. It's called The Life of Our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yeah, well, well, I jump now into some of the details of that journey?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, think when we say it's a large project, people just won't believe what we're talking about. It's <laughs> a series of 300 paintings. Plus, yeah. <laughs> and it, it is a truly monumental effort.
1: Right. So, this is a man who's, he's 50 at this point when he has this vision. As he puts it, he's at the middle of his life, the, the sort of flipping point to the back end. And He's spent his whole life creating paintings up to this point, And now he's about to go into overdrive and just create at a rate and of a quality that he's almost never done before.
0: There's a really excellently written article about him in the Catholic Herald, which is just wonderfully written, but it has a great phrase where it says Tissot who had sinned in oils now repented in watercolor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I do love that. Oh man. So yeah. Um, as I kind of hinted at before, he had this conversion experience, which some people immediately kind of dismissed or saw as a stunt. They thought it was an attempt to create headlines and try to attract attention to him. But as far as we can tell, it, it, if if the proof is in the pudding, it seems authentic because what it, it took him ten years to finish this first project before it really was presented in full or received much much funding or much money for it, and. In that whole time he did t- he took two trips to the Middle East for many months at a time alone. He didn't bring any friends from Europe. He only hired guides in the, the region and then came back to his sorry his family's home in France, where he would then paint off of the notes and drawings and, and actually photographs that he took and sort of do that endlessly for <laughs> you know nine and a half nine to eight years until he was finished when he set out on this on his first trip to the Middle East though before he had done anything he didn't entirely know what his vision was. he just knew he wanted to see how Christ had served and to start start painting something. But we do know from accounts of his trip that he did it incredibly intentionally. I mentioned that he brought no guests he didn't want to be a tourist there but he also went so far as to, tell his guides to take him down certain paths that were hours out of the way when traveling, just so he could see things the way that Jesus saw them. So, when he first arrived at Jerusalem, there was a rain coming and his troop wanted to get into the city before it got too rainy. And he said, no, no, I demand that we enter by the way Jesus would have entered the first time. So, he shielded his eyes as as his guides took him up and around the city to a a different hillside to enter upon. And then from there, he finally took his hand away to see the city for the first time. And, and I just I tell that story because it kind of gives an example of how he approached the rest of the trip. He treated it like a pilgrim, even though he was working and living off of, you know, a, a substantial amount of, of money. He he stayed with a a, a, woman, a woman's convent and prayed with them in the morning for morning prayer. Then went out into the city, did work pretty consistently, had a lunch, did more work, came back prayed with the Bible, spoke with spiritual authorities from Jewish, Catholic, and Orthodox traditions to try and inform his work, and then went to bed and did it again the next day. And so, he was truly a pilgrim. And the reason I said that quote earlier, it was, it was not a labor, it, it was a prayer, it was a devotion, is because that's one of the quotes he gave for that experience, was that a, it, it was entirely a passion for him at the time. It wasn't just a forced enterprise.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. Some of my favorite images that are in your slideshow are just the sketches. I mean, I say sketches, like they're insanely detailed. It's not like a couple of circles and some lines, like incredibly detailed sketches he does of like the tops of the capitals of columns in certain mosques so that he has all of this detail or the landscape and the ways that like just even the the stones lie or the hills roll in Mm -hmm. a particular way that he... He really sets about capturing what is really there. And, mm-hmm. and like you kind of mentioned already, he he was really interested in actually interacting with the people who were actually there. And he makes facial studies of what he calls types of like Armenian or a Jew or a typical woman in this place. And it's, it's funny, you can sometimes see the actual faces then crop up in his paintings later. Oh, yes, yeah. He did actually care about not just coming in and sort of, I guess, Hellenizing or Europeanizing what is there. And I think we'll get into a little bit later on how successful he was, but he was very genuinely trying to capture something of like what was actually in that space.
1: That's right. Yeah. There, there's there's so much to say here. Um, or yeah, let me just describe kind of how he went about it. But when he got on there on this trip, though, he decided... He wanted to create an account of the entirety of Christ's life in the Gospels. So, from that point forward, he knew that he wanted to tell the Gospel story with his paintings, which is why he set out to do so many. But the way he went about it, which is quite cool, is that he would take pictures, like actual photographs, or do pen drawings, as you described, of scenes, whether it be a a location in a city that caught his imagination or a person. Or an object or a detail that he used to inform his picture, but that when he got back to France to perform the actual painting of these scenes, he just had his notes and what he described as how he pictured every scene was a sort of hyperesthesia or uh, like like like, a, like a, a greater sort of sensory vision inside his head of what would happen. He like his, his drawings if um of the actual scenes he did only had sort of stick figures with black ovals for heads for the, the crowd of people. And in that, he said that he would look at it and pray upon it and a face would quite literally sort of appear on top of it and he would just paint whatever he had seen. And he worked in this way. He said that he, he had visions that were so beautiful, he couldn't even paint them. Visions of Christ that captured him for so long that he didn't feel he would be able to to actually put them down onto the paper. But he worked in this very strange way, as I described, for, for 10 years using all of these just, just notes and reference materials to create the actual works back at home. And then also, um, something quite interesting about his approach to the whole project was that all the depictions that he had known of the Holy Land, of Christ, of this story beforehand, as you kind of hinted at, were these Hellenized or Westernized depictions that, that took Western characters and and settings and just sort of, them together, you know? Yeah. And he he didn't despise them for that. He knew that they were limited by, by their knowledge and experience at the time, and he respected the theological profundity of their symbolism. But he wanted to, to create, if possible, the best and closest portrayal of a, a Palestinian gospel, if, if he could, like a gospel of the Middle East, a gospel of the world as he could rediscover it. And so, that's why he took these trips in the first place, was that he wanted to give a depiction of the Holy Land that had never been given before. And, and it's hard to, to emphasize this, but this was in the 1880s and 1890s. It truly was um, just about the most Middle East sort of inspired account that had ever been created of, of this scale. Uh, there were people who were already interested in painting that region, but none who had done so for the entirety of the gospel narrative.
0: Yeah. I was thinking, cause we're going to talk just briefly about Doré later in the episode, but, it was funny. I was reading an article about him where it was quoting a critic, which it was more specifically about Dore, but about Tiso in general. Where this critic was aghast at the idea that you would do this and described it as putting the gospel stories in a costume. It's <laughs> such a like crazy backwards way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> How dare you strive for realism?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that like putting it in a time and a place was somehow taking away the transcendent level of the story which uh, like I, I definitely think that there's space for all kinds of representations of the story mm-hmm. yeah I just think it's kind of funny the way that some people found this that like, it was actually not only new but in some ways relatively controversial
1: mm-hmm. yeah and we'll see as well that this this sort of strange paradoxical criticism that follows Tiso everywhere will continue to the present day in that there were figures who who look at it now and say oh well this tended to be historically accurate. But, you know, we can't really know how the Hebrews looked at the time of Jesus. We don't have any real sense of their fashion or they probably don't look like the sort of Arabic mix that's that, that's there now. But Tiso knew that. I think and he just tried to do the best that he could with what was accessible. No one can access it in uh, a, a gone past. So, he he tried to find, as he put it, the most noble figures he could. Um, in the entire region to inspire his works. But to do that, I think an often overlooked point, if you were to review the whole series, is that Tiso did a lot of actual historical reconstruction. The, he he arrived in a Jerusalem, which had been changed by the coming of Islam, which had been changed by hundreds of years since the time of Jesus' holy land. And he had to reconstruct the temple. He had to reconstruct Calvary. Um, he, had to, he had to strip away buildings and study the landscape and understand the actual sort of locations mentioned in the Bible to create a, a cohesive and and a cohesive world that was Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And so there's a, a particularly interesting painting towards the the Passion narrative called, I think it's just a um yeah, reconstruction of Jerusalem. And you get an entire almost panoramic shot of the city. And his level of detail is incredible. He has he has the Roman buildings, he has the temple with smoke rising out of it, he has the gates of the ancient walls. He really had to do so much reconstruction to create this this space, and I think that's oftentimes under, an under underrated element of his. his, uh, his
0: it was his described as, as as a marvel of architectural and archaeological representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who sees that painting, it is just like taking you, like you said, it, the and you know this is something that I think we'll come back to. But there's a really cinematic experience to these paintings. Um, Absolutely. Certainly, that feels like the big panning opening shot of the passion sequence. You know, like the situational shot that you can see the whole city. Whereas now we would have like the New York skyline. This was like <laughs> yeah. we're here in Jerusalem. Oh yeah, I
1: know truly. And and he does it even in the countryside as well. Um, later on, you'll see he has massive paintings of the sea of the Sea of Galilee as well, uh, or the Sea of Tiberius, and the mountain, the hills and mountains around them. And so he he does this all over. It's not limited to just one or two scenes. He's doing it everywhere. His, his landscape scenes are great. And again, that familiarity with fashion. Another huge point is that the clothing in this is
0: incredible. Um, and I was going to say it's one of my favorite parts of this. And I, I think it's one of the parts that I think critics have pulled up on the most. they would like, oh, well, presumably the, the clothes would have changed in 1800 years. And it's like... Well, okay, but it is amazing to see a very different style of dress than we're used to even now that like we maybe have more sort of like Middle Eastern specific ideas of what maybe they were wearing. But this is this feels very different to any of those. And in particular, even like silhouettes, the way that like women wear headdresses, the colors that they wear, the type of patterns. I feel like you just don't see color and pattern in the same way any in any other representation.
1: Absolutely. He, he, he he's completely aware of the different weaving traditions while he's there. If you look at the rugs and carpets in all the different rooms too, they're incredibly detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's taken quite quite a great interest in in getting these details correct, you know?
0: He's gone from the like fashions of Paris at the time. Yeah. And but he's taken that incredible knowledge which as we kind of mentioned comes from his parents of a mm-hmm. real eye for detail when it comes to fashion and fabric, mm-hmm. and taking that and put it onto these stories of the life of Christ.
1: Absolutely. And one of the the particular, I guess, aesthetics or traditions that he captures too, is in a way an ancient one, and, and one that's reliable, which is, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but it is the, uh, the Yemenite Hebrew group, um, in that you can still see this group to this day, if you want a reference, you can Google Yemenite weddings. And what it is, is if you look at the paintings for the wedding at Cana or the betrothal of, of Joseph and Mary. They're dressed in these incredibly ornate or just complex, I guess, sort of like costumes of sorts. And then the, the, the room around them is also decorated with lots of flowing fabric and drapery
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and gold adorned upon them. And this this aesthetic, this fashion that I'm describing still exists to this day, as I said, and is, quite, is very much a real tradition. And so
2: yeah. um,
1: it's an ancient one. And it's a reliable one. So he he even in the late 1800s, he's already hitting upon um, an incredibly small niche of of uh, Jewish culture that wouldn't really a- achieve greater recognition until the creation of the Israel Israeli state. Honestly, <laughs> and so so yeah, he's already discovering these small niche communities and incorporating that into his work. But one one last fun detail before I, I move on about um, the way he he chose figures or types, as you said, for his characters. Um, was that for most of the, the the Middle Eastern characters, yeah, he he just found groups of men and women who he found incredibly noble or or interesting or intriguing. And you can see those, those figures in his pen drawings, which are at the end of the slideshow I've created and are mixed throughout the actual printed Bible. But the only figures that he used for actual models, like the ones that he painted while they were there, was that for the Roman soldiers, he went to Paris and found... Um, waiters at cafes, <laughs> and he based all of his based all of his Roman soldiers off of Parisian waiters, which is pretty great.
0: That's amazing. And so that he produces these three hundred plus paintings, and as we say, they become a Bible. But actually, first they're just presented in a huge gallery as paintings.
1: Correct. So in in total, it was advertised as three hundred and sixty five full color paintings, and so it fits like a year, but. I I could be wrong. I I don't entirely know how that's counted because at least from what I found, it's like around that number, but it wasn't exactly that number. But the point is, he does all of these, these gouache or watercolor paintings and at first exhibits them in Paris and London and New York. Those are his three big cities. But... What happens is he doesn't present them in a place that would have been reserved for like religious artwork alone. He just goes straight to the salons and, and rents a space and says, I'm, I want to do this. I can afford it. Let me let me present you this massive collection of works. Mm-hmm. Um, and people weren't sure what to expect, but you had a, quite a mixed crowd coming. At in Paris specifically, um, you had it in this progressive artsy neighborhood where all of his former peers are coming by and having a look, as well as male and female aristocrats trying to pop in and see what all the fuss is about. But there's also reports of droves of priests with their hats pulled down, like kind of shuffling through the streets quickly and as they're in this progressive neighborhood trying to get into the TSO the exhibition to see what's going on. And so, some people speculate that this is very much intentional to put his, his um, rather orthodox story or, or project in a place that would encounter men and women from vastly different perspectives and backgrounds. And again, the reports at first were incredibly celebratory. They, they thought it was a triumph. They thought this collection of works had never sort of nothing, nothing of this, this scale had ever been done before. Um, and that men and women were both seen to be kneeling at a certain point as they were walking as they're going from painting to painting and some moments crying and, and leaving the exhibition with a a changed look upon their face when they entered very gaily uh, as these uh, sort of inflated aristocratic people. And so, there, there's stories like this from all the different exhibitions, uh, including the New York one, which I think encountered probably the most wide array of people. I would say it might have been a little bit more aristocratic in the the Parisian and and London exhibitions. But it it was so successful that, um, as you mentioned, he decided, because he had experience with creating prints and illustrations for books in the past, that he would... He would create what was like a synthetic gospel. He would take the four gospel stories and combine them in such a way that his paintings were accompanying the specific lines from each one, and he would say which one it was. And it would just be the story of Christ told in one gospel narrative accompanied by these 365 color paintings and then hundreds of his, his, his pen drawings and types to try and give people a sense of the Holy Land itself.
0: Yeah, it does almost feel like it is like a still movie that you would almost like flick through it. I don't want to be irreverent, but like almost like a comic book or a graphic novel that you would just see all of these aspects. And I think maybe that's a good opportunity for us. That's like the whole of his life. And it's great to get such detail, but maybe to just zone in on some of the particular elements of the series of paintings that, or like are particularly moving for us. Because I was going to say that, and it's been noted in a couple of the articles that i read that naturally there's a lot of the paintings that in and of themselves are very impressive or very moving or very intriguing. But what you really get from this that I don't think you get from almost anything else is sheer quantity. Mm-hmm. And I think usually the idea is quality over quantity, but there is something about just a sheer monument of endless images. And as we said, you've put them together in a, in a slideshow that people can kind of see them as a through story, that it just sort of compounds upon itself as as you follow these characters, these people, as you go through the gospel narratives, as you're following these these different people and their story that they're going on and, and Christ at the center of that always, that it does become sort of even more affecting as you go along because of how much you've been through to to get to this point.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, let's get into some of the specific paintings. We've talked a lot about everything that surrounds them, but the paintings that, that would sort of speak for themselves. And, and we'll give you guys names if you want to To search them up and we'll tell you how or you can look at the slideshow. But yeah, a word that we tossed around before and a lot of scholars have mentioned too independently is a proto-movie. So, you talk about it feeling like one of these epic stories of the life of Christ and and it truly is the first of its kind but in a painting medium. And so, I, I guess like you'll mention Doré as someone who also approaches this but just in the sense of a gospel story wherein Almost every single image bleeds into the next. Like you'll see details carry over, costumes carry over. All the characters are consistent. Peter is dressed a certain way. Mary is dressed a certain way. Mary Magdalene's hair is always exposed a certain way. The buildings are the same. You know, it, it, you feel like you're being pulled through a consistent story. It's not just individual episodic treatings of, of traditional things. Because you mentioned there's such a great quantity, he's addressing things that many of us have never seen painted before and so um i don't know if you want to mention some of your favorites i I mentioned that one of the very beginning of jesus's ministry is just a painting of an axe laid to the foot of a tree and i was like i don't remember this at all in the bible and it's it's just like a it's meant to be sort of a it's a passage at the beginning of one of the gospels that's foreshadowing yeah um, you know the coming of christ at felling the, the the roots of trees that have not borne fruit um, yeah, but yeah.
0: <laughs> there was one which had like two women milling grain and I was like, what is that in reference to <laughs> genuinely this barely passing reference to oh the the angel of the lord will take from from two women milling grain will take one of them you know that idea of like separating the wheat from the chaff but mm-hmm. like, that like it's literally just one line or there was another one about as zacharias who was killed between the sanctuary and the altar mm-hmm. and again i was like i just feel like I don't know this story because it's not a story. It's literally <laughs> like one line. Jesus says, oh, just like they killed this person and how Zacharias was killed, blah, blah, blah. And that's it. It's never mentioned as far as I know again. And
2: mm-hmm.
0: that gets its own painting. And right. it's. It's just amazing to feel like you're getting this, like even beyond a movie, it almost feels like those sort of like Oculus glasses that you can now get that you could almost go into sort of a painted landscape of Jesus's life and like turn in any direction and see mm-hmm. that one detail over there or that one incident over there.
1: Yeah, if anything, it also shows Tiso's familiarity with the subject. I mean, he he truly like, like tried his best to to become as much of a an amateur biblical scholar as he could um, mm-hmm. and, and did and did understand all of these references and traditions and traditions of interpretation there's some other great ones that are sort of funny but there's one where it's the blind leading the blind into a ditch and that one's almost comical like as yeah. compared to the others it's all these people stumbling
0: <laughs> yeah but i actually think that's another aspect it's a very sort of physical style of painting it is and that was something I was going to bring up, which is that there's a huge sense of humanity to the paintings. They're not in that very classical posed style where everyone seems to have been told like, okay, hold it there for a second while I paint mm-hmm. this, you know, that everyone's in this so very... The, a Raphael
1: place. style. Everyone's like yeah. picturesque. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then when there's a crowd, they're all in like a, a perfect pyramid sort of shape within the painting. But it, it's very much like a pile of people in one direction, a line of people in another, the... landscape in the background it's full of people and to me it really brought on the sense of the the humanity of christ and the the physical experience of being around him particularly in terms of healing people like you just see the the physical signs of illness even the the pictures of the demoniacs it's very oh yeah it is and i just think that it's you get that sense of people actually pressing around them. And it's one of the times that I've been really impressed with why, you know, the way there's all of those references in the Bible to Jesus wanting to get away from the crowds, wanting to step away from them. And it's like, Oh, I actually feel that looking at these paintings because they just mm-hmm. feel so pressed in with people and people in dire situations who need compassion and need Attention, and it's you know even emotionally distressing to see poverty and and real want in these pictures. Uh, I know one article described it as almost like like a Dickens novel where you're just like covered in characters that are all sort of toppling over each other and in various states of I guess like degradation or aristocracy or like all of these kind of elements. But it's really impressive to me, and I think some of the my favorite sort of crowd scenes are uh, particularly from the Passion paintings. Mm -hmm. There's one which is Maltreatments in the House of Caiaphas which just has Christ blindfolded and bound and just this absolute swarm of people all with their hands raised to try and hit him. There's one person throwing water over him. There's another with a spear. They're just all absolutely completely surrounding him in this very kind of it's it's a very evocative painting, and then the other one that I really love of that kind of crowd scene is the Ecce Homo, Behold the Man, the moment with Pontius Pilate presenting Christ to the Jews for for their, their response, and mm-hmm. it's this great perspective. Again, it feels really cinematic. You've got this sheer wall of the the Roman architecture. Mm-hmm. Pontius Pilate leaning out over it to this absolute swarming mass beneath. I just think Mm -hmm. it's an incredible painting. And then Christ already covered in blood, already with the crown of thorns. It's just such a visceral moment. And again, that sense of like cinematic perspective and the the sort of real reality of what it's like to be in a a city with a lot of people. Because obviously it being the Passover at that time, it just would have been an, an immense amount of people in that space. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I, 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 man, even right around that painting, um, there's another, the one right after, I believe, is Let Him Be Crucified. Mm -hmm. Um, And it zooms out and shows the crowd on an even greater scale. And there are people climbing over columns and people like, like fighting to get over top of each other. And you can see the chaos that's happening. I wanted to say really quickly in case it's unclear for anybody before I say any more paintings is that if you'd like to to see these, that you can all check out the slideshow that I, that we mentioned that I created, or if you're just looking for individual ones, because the slideshow is quite big um, just search the name that we're mentioning for the painting mm-hmm. along with James Tissot or James Tissot Brooklyn museum. The Brooklyn museum is the, the museum who owns all of these and they have really great high quality images. So, but it, but the Google is better than their website search, which is why I say search it on Google. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. I I totally agree that he just captures the, the humanness of it in a way, which is quite funny because we're about to say that he also captures something else in the story, which is the supernatural. Um, I think what we're getting at though, with the human part is it's not like you said sort of, a staged or overly perfect depiction of a scene. It feels like it feels like a very human scene.
2: Mm-hmm. You can
1: see the emotions of people. It's focusing more on how Christ is affecting people, not what the actions are so much. Yeah. It's about it's about how people are changed by him. You can see their faces, you can see the turmoil, you can see the challenge in a lot of the cases of the healings you mentioned. There's mm-hmm. this confrontation between a loving face and a very troubled face. And so we have a lot of faces and a lot of emotion going on.
0: And actually, in some ways, I think the paintings of Christ himself, he keeps Christ quite like neutral in some ways, that he's in some ways the least sort of affected face within that kind of space, which I guess is a, a very deliberate choice in terms of what he was trying to go for. And he's, he's in his white robe, so you can always spot him wherever he is in any painting. But... I, I do want to mention one last crowd painting, which is probably one of the most notable paintings that he has ever done, which is What Christ Saw from the Cross. Yes. Which, again, blends into this whole, firstly, the cinematic quality, and then the crowd Quality, which is he paints the view that Christ had from the, his crucifixion, and you from
1: POV, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely, and you can see Mary and John, and you can see the Roman centurions, and you can see this like great stretch back into the distance of people watching and not coming close, and it's this kind of big medley of, of people, and it's almost like a fisheye view. You can tell it's from someone's eyes and not just like somebody standing up on a plinth and painting the the surrounding area. Yeah.
1: Like oh yeah, you're right. The the perspective and and sort of the parallax of it is quite strange in a way, but you're right. You can see if you look closely his feet are just poking out of the bottom of the of the frame because you can see his own feet and that this is truly perhaps one of the most literal examples of trying to help us experience Christ's suffering or or to witness from within Christ's suffering. I I don't know of any other paintings. I'm sure there are, but I I don't know of any other famous paintings that are painted from Christ's POV. Do you know of any? (laughs) Not
0: not off the top of my head, no.
1: Right. So it's quite unique in that regard Um, and very famous, as you said, for that reason.
0: Yeah. And then as you hinted, I think the other thing we wanted to talk about is despite this very like visceral, realistic, not staged kind of perspective that he brings to it, his supernatural stuff is also just as compelling.
1: And it's probably one of the most strange or eye-catching parts of of the series. It's what got my attention initially.
0: Absolutely. And I think, first of all, I think, obviously, it goes without saying the Annunciation is a really notable Mm -hmm. example of this, the way he paints angels is very both familiar and also strange at the same time yeah you definitely get the sense of why an angel would need to say do not be afraid
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes it's like the the recent memes of the biblically accurate angels to a degree um but but also just that they're strange not that they're necessarily scary but they are strange what i love though is that a lot of the colors in this series because again they're all they're all cohesive it's painted on a gray canvas with watercolor gouache, but it's usually kind of like oranges, warmer tans and whites. Mm-hmm. But whenever angels appear, he does a cold and and ethereal like white blue for almost all of them. and and it really just stands out in contrasts against the the colors of the rest of it, and the the blue on the gray is makes a very, very interesting color. But yeah, as you mentioned, the Annunciation is an incredible example. I, I like, and another famous one is Jesus ministered to by angels. If you want to search that one up, it's incredible. And then you mentioned one with the temple. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Well, I, there's a couple of ones that I was really struck with. The first thing I want to say is that the color style and even the styling really reminds me of, there's a really famous, and I wish I had the name of the art, artist off the top of my head. I'll try and link it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. There's a really famous depiction of the Snow Queen from the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales Mm -hmm. and it has that kind of very intricate blue supernatural quality to it that does feel like it's kind of breaking through from another realm but yeah as you said the some of the ones that i really loved included that there's a sequence of paintings from christ in the desert and his temptations Mm -hmm. with the devil and in particular there's one where Satan lifts Christ up to see the city and offer him the city. And it's this really kind of, again, disturbing blue kind of quality. You have this incredibly intricate architectural painting beneath them. And Christ has sort of got his eyes closed and his hands clasped in prayer. And behind him, lifting him up, is this devil figure that's transparent and has no real... The holes for his eyes and his mouth are vacant. You can see through them just so unnerving in a way that it, like I said, it's so amazing that he is both very visceral and human focused and also has this incredible ability to depict the supernatural. Another one of my favorites is the, the, the grotto of the agony. So the, the agony in the garden Mm -hmm. where a bit like you were saying with Christ ministered to by angels, surrounded by angels. And they're holding up these discs, which you can see snippets of what's to come in the passion, Mm including crucifixion and the cloth of veronica and they're all hovering ar- around him and in fact there are two see-through angels in the foreground which yeah should be blocking your view of christ except mm-hmm. that made them transparent and again it's so cinematic in that way
1: Absolutely. The one you're mentioning with the temple is called Jesus carried up to a pinnacle of the temple, if people want to search that. And then, yeah, the, the the temptation or the agony in the garden is also incredible. There's one more I want to mention. I mean, there's there's a bunch of these that I think people would love and you'll see them if you, if you just go through the slideshow, they'll, they'll all surprise you. But there's one more that's quite strange or unique in that it has Jesus praying alone on the hill of Calvary during Holy Week. The painting is called Christ Retreats to the Mountain at Night. Now, I'll almost say that if people want to look at this themselves, there's some really subtle sort of spiritual detail going on. That's quite a surprise once you see it. So I won't spoil it. But once you get to that that painting, Christ Retreats to the Mountain at Night, there's quite a tiny detail which you might eventually notice. And it it just truly sticks out to you, like you mentioned.
0: Similarly, I'd like to point out in the painting, which again, you have in in the blog post about the vision that he has called Inner Voices.
1: That's correct. The one of Jesus in the the ruined building.
0: <laughs> the ruined building with the, the homeless couple. Christ is wearing this cloak, which it honestly, I've looked at this painting a bunch of times and it honestly took me a while to notice that the border of his cloak is this richly, tapestried or embroidered cloak mm-hmm. that has biblical scenes the whole way down it, which again, is just another amazing example of his attention to detail, especially when it comes yeah. to the fabric.
1: You were mentioning the detail. I just want to say one last thing for me. I want to get onto Dor- Doré and some other things. And, and maybe we'll talk about the passion briefly, but yeah, those details are, are pre- present everywhere in the sense that if you, if you look throughout the gospels, there's still a lot of unspoken symbolism going on in that Christ. Being the son of a carpenter is frequently depicted carrying wood, <laughs> and like, wonder what that could symbolize, you know. Um, but there's there's lots of these little details going on, and and when you mentioned the clothing as well, I mean, just just everything has been given been given its due attention, and and is founded in traditions of biblical interpretation. So, yeah. everything that he's doing, all the the geography, all of the timelines are all meticulously studied as best as he could at the time with with the history of academia available to try and make it as as sort of legitimate as he could.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about another artist. I think it's good to put up another counterpoint to Tissot. But like we said, he he was really hard done by a lot of his friends for being a faking this At religious devotion.
1: Yeah, his longtime friend Edgar Degas, who he met as a young aspiring artist, grew up with, was invited to exhibit with him once Tissot mentioned that he was beginning this project. He said, quote, now he's got religion. He says he experiences inconceivable joy in his faith. At the same time, he not only sells his own products high, but sells his friends' pictures as well. Well, I can take my vengeance. I shall do a caricature of Tiso with Christ behind him, whipping him and call it Christ driving his merchant from the temple. End quote.
0: (laughs) It really reminds me of that quote we actually discussed in our last episode with um, T.S. Eliot, with all of his modern friends who are outraged by his converting. (laughs) Was
1: a a stunt.
0: (laughs) The Virginia Woolf quote is saying like, I just can't bear to think of someone sitting by the fire and believing in God.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> People will get really offended.
0: Genuinely outraged. And I think it brings up an interesting question, maybe one that we don't really have time to go into here, but sure. it does bring up an interesting question where there is a conflict, I think, with Catholics who are involved in in art and artwork and trying to make a living from it. And where does it become mercenary? And where do you get so involved in the financial benefit of what you're doing that you lose some of the spiritual benefit now i would i I kind of definitely come down on tso side of things for this particular example but i think it is a complicated question that catholics and christians and people who do work for their faith that they have to encounter and wrestle with this fact that you're doing it for spiritual reasons but getting a financial benefit it's just a really kind of interesting place to explore
1: and Tisa is perhaps a, tr- a troubling example because he didn't know if he was going to get financial reward. He was already seen as a struggling artist moving back to Paris in a sense, yeah. even though he was accomplished, he had to start over again. And like, <laughs> he he left for 10 years, got very little pay. But when he came back, was paid like tens of millions of dollars of today in today's money for his works. And so he, he made it big and he lived comfortably for the rest of his life. Although he, he uh, as I'll mention at the end, he didn't die with much of a legacy. Yeah, it is a strange example of somebody who, in a way, was able to put their talents to what was, you know, by all accounts, a, a, a genuine purpose or a genuine use. And then happened to be successful as well.
0: Yeah, and I guess one of the reasons why this criticism can be fired at him is that there was something called the French Catholic Revival happening around this time, which was pushing back against this more secular tendency in the arts at that time. And so he, in some ways, was jumping on a bandwagon that was definitely happening at this time. And one of the big examples of this is Gustave Doré. I really want to bring him up mainly because I love Gustave Doré. Dory's a really interesting example. He's he's almost Tissot's contemporary. He's, his, he's senior by about four years. They're very contemporaneous. They have a lot of the same friends. Interestingly, they have a lot of parallels in that they were both Anglophiles. They were both incredibly close friends with the Impressionists, but not Impressionists. But Doré was one of these people, again, even more so than Tiso, who is just annoyingly brilliant at everything he did. He did paintings, he did illustrations, he later did sculpture. Which-
1: there are like three Tiso sculptures, which are very un- unknown, <laughs> but they're there.
0: <laughs> yeah, Doré has these amazingly intricate, everything he does is insanely intricate. And he's most known for his illustration and his illustration style, which I seeked out over the years. It began with, there's a, this is a very tangential, but there's a comic author from Germany, called Walter Moores who wrote – he took a selection of Dory's illustrations and then wrote a story around them. And I was a big fan of all of his stuff, so I remember getting this book and being like, this is so interesting. Mm -hmm. And ever since then I've kind of followed – the scent of Dore across literature. He illustrated some of the really big works of literature. He's done Cervantes. His Don Quixote was one of the most famous and successful things he ever did. He did The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. He did the illustrations of Paradise Lost. And notably, he did both a series of paintings and illustrations for the Divine Comedy. I think most people will be quite familiar with if they saw it. He also attempted to begin a project where he was going to produce an illustrated Shakespeare, like the whole compendium of Shakespeare's works, illustrated, which he had planned to be about a thousand paintings.
1: <laughs> okay, think, he might outdo Tissa so there.
0: I know. You just think that like these people had such a, a concept of scale in terms of their work at this time. And he's had a huge impact cinematically. He's he has a very romantic style and again uh, listeners who know me well will know I'm talking about this sort of romantic movement, this medievalist style, this supernatural, gothic, sinister style. He does a lot of that. Of course, for anyone who's doing something like the Inferno or any of those stories, he has to be really richly involved in that kind of area. He also has a, a series illustrating London. And these things like the London ones really impacted the portrayals of, say, cinema for Oliver Twist or even Tim Burton I think in doing things like Sweeney Todd they they were very influential he influenced a lot of like fantasy work including Peter Jackson for both King Kong and Lord of the Rings but even down to his his illustration for Puss in Boots was like pretty much copy and pasted for the Shrek films
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh
0: but in the in the middle of all of this he gets asked to do a illustrated bible and he precedes Tissot by about 20 years. I think mm-hmm. it's almost exactly 20 years. Yeah. And it comes at the middle of his life. When I was researching him, perhaps maybe if I'd been able to get my hands on some books, it, there would have been more information. I feel like I wasn't able to find a lot of personal information about his life. Mm-hmm. He never married. He was a Catholic. But I didn't ever read much that gave me any insight about his particular interaction with faith or his kind of experience of the world. It's very much in the background in terms of we know his work and maybe not so much about him. He was first approached to do a Bible illustration for the French publisher Hachette. They stipulated that he would have to make a trip to the Middle East to do it. And in the exact opposite style, he so he flat out refused. <laughs> <laughs> so he just had no interest in going. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then he got asked by a Catholic publisher in the UK to do the Bible illustrations. And so he produced his own illustrated Bible, which I think has lasted maybe more than the Tissot one. Um, I've certainly seen it in a lot of different areas, but I really like his style. It's all that kind of line drawing, that pen black and white illustration I think they're really beautiful. I find them very moving. Um, I think it's great to have both the sort of Tissot and the Dore. I guess if I were comparing the two, I would say Tissot's has that sort of very visceral element. And while Dore's has an incredible amount of detail as well, to me, it has a more sort of high fantasy element to it which is not to say that i don't think he's trying to portray the reality of it he absolutely is but to me it feels like a more polished like like a true epic yeah yeah, a true epic it really feels like those mid-century films that had outrageous budgets like i was gonna say it feels like a ben-hur in a way Yeah, yeah exactly and so in that way kind of a slightly more polished effect again he does a lot of supernatural stuff Uh, especially for his illustrations for the Book of Revelation, which are some Mm -hmm. of my favorites. Um, There's the vision of death, which is very striking, but it it definitely feels more in that high fantasy cinematic style, whereas Tissot's definitely feels more like, you you mentioned the passion, it feels more like that kind of portrayal of Christ's life. I really love them both, but hilariously, so he made a great study of a lot of the paintings that were coming out of, the Middle East at that time, because France was in the middle of like its big Egyptian mania at that moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It
1: was it was a whole thing that they called Orientalism, but it was is perhaps a, a, an improper term, but that's what they called it at the time.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so, he had the benefit of all of that information coming out and being available to him. And so, there is a huge amount of detail, particularly for the architectural style, which again, like we said, was a definite move towards not having it too Hellenized, making it more Middle Eastern, making it more appropriate. I came across a really great article. It's on, I think it's an online journal called 19th Century Art Worldwide. The article which is quite long and very detailed mm-hmm. it's called from the smallest fragment the archaeology of the dore bible where it goes into great detail the many things that dore drew from but the the funny thing is is that it describes dore's reception which is to unanimous acclaim for his amazing historicity which <laughs> is- is so both funny and gutting. They're at the stage where they're like nitpicking Tiso and saying, like, well, actually <laughs> and then that you twenty years earlier you have the Dore Bible where he's never gone.
1: Secondhand interpretation of what it is.
0: And their the reaction is to be like, the historicity is amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So
1: <laughs> that I, I joked earlier that Dore walked so that Tiso could run, which is I mean so true in the sense that like Doré did a, did an amazing work and he yeah. truly inspired and paved the way for, for what Tiso's project was but yeah. but Tiso's additions or what he brought to that project were precisely inspired by that. He he didn't want um, the story to just be clothed in mm-hmm. like, like the limits of western imagination.
0: Yeah, and the and the article really goes on to like try and <laughs> Dependent. <laughs> <laughs> to, to to point out that this wasn't necessarily accurate. So it says one thing should be made clear from the outset, however, despite the widespread praise for the historical accuracy of Dory's work, his Bible illustrations abound with inaccuracies, misrepresentations, his images appropriate the most popularized elements of, of biblical archaeology mm-hmm. and are completed with his own imaginative inventions or else amalgamated with elements of other sources. <laughs> Dory's reconstructions of, quote, palaces buried in sand are dramatic backdrops for the epic narratives of the Bible, but other elements of his illustrations reveal a much less active engagement with the material remains of the Biblical. (laughs) As I will conclude, however, Dory's often haphazard appropriation of archaeological fragments is significant for what it reveals about the Bible in the modern world. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also goes on to say that like part of the problem with this is that, almost because of this mania for Egyptology at the time. Mm-hmm. It, it's very much subject to the the fashions of what is making it popular. It says, Egyptomania was characterized not simply by the copying of ancient Egyptian visual language, rather it consisted of artists recreating these forms, quote, in the cauldron of their own sensibility and in the context of their own times.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: His work is, is really interesting and really detailed and has this, Particularly Egyptian quality to the settings,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but there is this sense that it is more leaning on what makes that era of time fashionable for the time that he's making it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and I mean, people could there, there might be some similar criticisms that are worthwhile for Tissot as well. I mean, I'm not entirely sure about if he didn't depict it the the time accurately, but more that he did pick and choose what he depicted. Mm-hmm and so he did so intentionally to tell a story he depicted the synagogues as incredibly ornate and lavish to try to like p- paint the picture of what Christ was coming to to change or to oppose or, or to or to just you know improve in some way and so you can make a similar argument that he is he's being selective for his own his own narrative but it's one that's inspired by by the gospel so i will say one quick thing about where Tiso, I think, was quite honestly just directly inspired by Doré if he saw it. And I, and I imagine he did if it was a 20-year gap. Um, his painting, The Pardon of the Good Thief, I think Tiso's painting of that is possibly inspired by Doré's, quote, the crucifixion. Um, if you look, at least the framing is almost identical. The crowd and the crosses are in the exact same places. And there, there's quite a, a striking similarity between between those works. And that's just my opinion, but it, it, it may not be the case. But you can at least see how the cinematic framing continues throughout from from Dore's work on to Tissot's work, and, and they share that in common.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's also just important to note that there is definitely a space for both of these kind of works in that um, mm-hmm. Dore's was a full illustrated Bible, and while Tiso went on to begin a project to illustrate the Old Testament, he died before he could complete it, whereas obviously for this, Doré is very much just following what you would expect maybe for an illustrated Bible. It's all the, the key... Highlights. Yeah, it's yeah, the moments that you expect. It's those moments you can't miss.
1: You're familiar with them already, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Whereas Tissot's Life of Christ is just the gospel stories and very, as we said, minutely and from a lot of different unusual aspects.
1: Absolutely. I'll say, I just wanted to say one more thing regarding sort of the tail end of this project. So Tissot, as you, you kind of hinted at this, but Tissot made a, a good amount of money off of this, this series. He then printed thousands of very accessible illustrated Bibles, but they were they were just his his concise gospel story, which were incredibly popular in the UK and America. They were also sold in France and French, but were much more widely spread in, in English. And he went on to try and paint this the Old Testament as well, taking one more trip to the Middle East to inspire that. It wasn't as critically acclaimed, but still has some some incredibly famous paintings within it. And I'm, I might make a, another slideshow of that since that one also, it seems inaccessible. We'll see.
0: There's one, I, maybe this is what you're going to say. There's one detail in these paintings, which I think most listeners will be familiar with, mm-hmm. which is his depiction of the Ark of the Covenant, which is That's right. copied almost like verbatim for Indiana Jones. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. I, if you look at my article, I have a comparison of the two pictures, if you want. And it, it, is, it is absolutely taken from there. And that kind of, yeah, it gets to my point, which is that he died partway through completing the, um, the Old Testament series in 1902. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, he never married, he never had any children. And he died in his sort of inherited family estate in the countryside of France, where his, his nieces ended up taking over his, his estate, all of his paintings in his house and being in charge of it and the thing is they didn't do a lot with it it seems like they preserved it or kept it there didn't sell much but um but they just kind of sat there until they both passed away and had no children of their own <laughs> and so a lot of people wonder what happened like why why was it that Tissot was so renowned in his time made millions off of his paintings was acclaimed and criticized by famous artists and, and critics alike and then for us to sort of forget about him, you know, like what, why did this occur? And some people have wagered that it might be because he didn't have anyone to carry on his legacy. There were no children to kind of like, like there were no Christopher Tolkiens to kind of like defend their work, you know? And that, I think that might be true. I think another part of it, which we'll get into in just a sec, which has to do with illustrated Bibles in general. Um, it's just that the fact that it was a combined hybrid gospel was probably a little bit strange for, for Catholics at the very least. Um, but last thing I'll say is that Despite not having a name recognition in the world, not having that kind of legacy, when you when you mention with Indiana Jones, um, hints at the fact that he actually had a massive impact in terms of changing the West's vision of the Middle East, um, and and particularly of the Holy Land. And why I say this is, I, I I try to make the case in my article. But if you look at sort of just the general cultural awareness or imagination of that of that place and time after the Tissot Bible enters publication, Mm -hmm. it just entirely changes. It goes from earlier style, like you mentioned, of a Hellenized, almost Greek looking or classical or perfect posed version of these scenes to people having people in flowy robes and turbans or whatever it is, even if it's not even accurate, it's changed to that. And and so, you'll notice that no matter where it is, Tissot's massive project has just changed the cultural imagination of an entire people to start seeing it differently. And and I mentioned as well, there's, there's plenty of movies that you can see direct influences on as well, whether it be Ben-Hur or Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth from the seventies. And then also including like some other, some other works of art, like you can see his influence clearly, clearly present, even if people don't know his name.
2: And so,
0: um, yeah it's there. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think maybe to just round out the episode, I think Uh it's kind of nice to note that Illustrated Bibles are an amazing resource. And we don't, I think we only think of them for children. It's funny, I actually had an Illustrated Bible as a child, a quite again, a quite detailed one. It wasn't sort of like a friendly cartoon one. And I actually saw one of the illustrations that Dory did of Noah's Ark with like a load of people drowning outside. And it reminded me that actually that's very similar to what's in my Bible, which was of a level of detail potentially to disturb children, which was <laughs> showed a lot of people stuck outside the Ark. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think we only associate those kind of illustrated bibles with with children and in some ways it's kind of a shame that it's a way that would really draw people in and one of the examples I, I just want to pull out I was bought myself one of the amazing copies of the the Word on Fire Bible that came out earlier this year and it's just actually speaking of the gospel stories this edition is just the gospels although I know they're they're planning on releasing it as like a six volume edition of the bible it's not i, I don't know if the word illustrated is completely correct it incorporates Paintings, all kinds of paintings. There's actually, I've just opened it on Vincent van Gogh's Wheat Fields with Cypresses. So not even just religious paintings, but showing the fingerprints of Christian faith on all of the greats of, of culture. Mm-hmm it's got a lot of extra information from like church fathers or Catholic thinkers and then obviously commentary from Bishop Barron. It's beautifully designed. Like as much as it shows off works of art, it itself is also supposed to be a a work of art. I know they described it as as a cathedral in print and they really have kind of agonized over so much of the details and it's a a really beautiful object. And actually each of the Gospels is bookended with glorious page of gold Mm -hmm. illustration, which are the Dore illustrations. They pick one Dory illustration for each of the Gospels and put mm-hmm. it at the start of the four Gospels. And so there, there is a Dory element I have checked. I don't think there's a Tiso painting in it. With
1: <laughs> Darn. <laughs> See, proven our points. Yeah, no, I, I love that you brought up the idea of illustrated Bibles or Gospels, because I think we were talking earlier about um, why it seems so strange that Dory and Tiso sort of paved the way for an unintentionally, illustrated cohesive bible right and that like before then we had bibles with illustrations but they were just like like yours they were famous paintings added in rather than designed for the text and why was it that all of a sudden that drops off we don't have like great versions of it we don't have memory of these people like they seem to they seem to catch on in other christian groups but not catholic groups and yeah perhaps you're right like there maybe there needs to be Greater attention to these works, or or more of an openness to experiencing them in such a way. The one tradition we do have is illuminated gospels and, and Bibles, which is a little bit different, mm-hmm. um, but definitely a beautiful tradition. But these illustrated ones seem to be worthwhile in and of themselves. And so, yeah, hopefully this podcast or my project can help people get introduced to it. Um, and yeah, I really hope people just enjoy it. It was a it was a love of mine to try and give this artist some attention and. Hopefully you enjoy experiencing this work. I'll also say that I'll, I'll tell you how to find the article at the end, but there is a link in my article to uh, a digital version of the original Tissot gospel, if you'd like to access it. And so that way you can, you can click through what his gospel looked like and how it was organized and how he actually associated just a few sections at a time with paintings and, and put his drawings mixed in. But if you want to experience the, the original high quality paintings, that's what I've created the slideshow
0: for. I think it's a great thing to do. Like I said at the start, I think it's a great thing to do at this time of year. It feels to me like a pilgrimage through painting, Um, (laughs) especially in this year where we can't go on pilgrimages. This is actually a wonderful way for art to take you on a journey and Mm -hmm. journey of Christ's life, which, like I said, feels more relevant than ever at this time of year. So I think is that our, our podcast?
1: Yeah, I, I'll i just give a way to find the website in case you don't have the show notes. But like Rachel said, she'll link it. But if you also just Google In Praise of Follies, which is my blog's name, and then my name, Shane Jenkins. In Praise of Follies, Shane Jenkins. That's how you can find it on Google. So
0: Excellent. Yeah, that's wonderful. And other than that, I guess we have to do our last question, which is what have uh, you been enjoying at the moment, Shane? <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I would have said Piranesi because I'm actually reading that and I am enjoying it. But I was also reading, there's a book that was gifted from a while ago, actually, called How the Irish Saved Western Civilization, I think, which is a, a grandiose title. But I think it's a semi-famous book amongst Irish historians, actually loving it. It's um, it's by somebody who clearly has an awareness of sort of the Western canon of thought. He has a profound respect for St. Augustine and other figures and and sort of, is able to understand the church's impact in Western civilization without being overly flowery, or without and without being uncharitable. And so, I, it's honestly really entertaining. It's a good read. It's made me respect tax collectors for the first time, <laughs> which is a strange claim. But he yeah. does it somehow. And I, I, I don't have the name of the the author with me here. But the yeah, you can find the book quite easily if you search "How the Irish Saved Western Civilization." So
0: wonderful. I think I'm going to say. I don't know, maybe I recommended this at the start of the year. I started listening to this audiobook at the start of this year and then took a break. When lockdown happened, I had to get a new routine for audiobooks. So I decided to not stick at the audiobook that was 36 hours long. But (laughs) now I'm back at it and it's very fitting. I'm listening to David Copperfield, the, the Dickens novel, which, like I said, if you ever want a slew of characters all toppling over each other, but I'm really enjoying it. The audiobook is read by Richard Armitage, who is just a great reader and a great actor so it makes it very easy. Like I said, it's quite lengthy, obviously. <laughs> but I'm surprised that it's actually kind of flying by. I'm really enjoying listening to it. So Dickens is definitely one that, for an author that I sort of passionately defend as being interesting and everyone should like take the time to not just read the really like serious works and actually read some of his more comic works because I think he's got a lot of range. But I haven't actually read many of his larger novels. I've read a lot of his short fiction. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, it's great to finally get to grips with some of his seminal novels and so yeah I'm really enjoying that and obviously Dickens and Christmas they go hand in hand so it's very fitting and that I guess, I guess that's an opportunity I, again to wish everyone a very happy Christmas it's been a wonderful year for me in terms of the podcast I've really enjoyed making these episodes um, obviously it's been a strange year to live through but I've had a great time talking to lots of different people and lots of different old friends so I'm really looking forward to what the new year brings in terms of this podcast and hopefully in terms of our lives that we might be able to get out and do some more things like I said I'm going to take a break for December which means that I won't have any episodes for January because obviously I'm pre-recording them but I should be back in February and looking forward to it. And I just hope everyone has a wonderful Christmas. Is there anything else that you'd like to shout out, Shane?
1: Um, I'd say give yourself a pat on the back for a great year of podcasts. I've enjoyed listening as well. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know if I have any particular shout outs, except to say thank you to everybody who's been so supportive in this time, like a uh, shout out to the Conroys and, and Father Connor, perhaps if they're listening.
0: Yeah, they've been real powerhouses in keeping the the wheels on a lot of these wagons that could have easily fallen off. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. As always, even if I'm not producing podcasts, you can still follow me online. I'm seeking Watson on Twitter and Instagram. And there's also a Instagram page for the podcast, Risking Enchantment Podcast. And as I've said a couple of times in the last few episodes, I've set up on my website, rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast, you can sign up to the newsletter, which just lets you know, perhaps, as there's going to be a little bit of a break over the winter, you might want to be notified when the next one comes back. So sign up to the email, and I'll send out an email, letting you know that there's a new episode. And like I said, I'm hoping, maybe while I take a break, I'll do some work and have some other kinds of content to share with People during the new year so looking forward to all of that and um, I guess it's time to say goodbye and happy Christmas happy Christmas everybody this has been Risking Enchantment music by Kevin MacLeod you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson and you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com Thank you and God bless.